let's uh, let's turn to the book of uh, Micah. Hey, John, get me a uh, get me a Bible for Linnell here, so she'll have her own Bible. And Linnell, you can keep this. Just you can have it. Okay. We we I forgot that I usually announce it. I'm sorry, I forgot. But a Bible is available for you. Make Alan find Jonah for you. I want to stand here and see if he knows where it's at. (laughs) Okay. If you have your Bible this morning, let's turn to the book of Micah. And uh, the book of Micah is a great book that has some incredible keys in it that uh, are going to help you today. You're going to learn another piece of the puzzle this morning. And as you know, we have been coming through the Bible. Uh, book by book, and one of the things we have been doing is basically giving you an overall perspective of the Word of God, doctrinally, historically, and inspirationally. But also, I don't know if you picked up on it or not, I'm sure many of you did, I've been giving you large pieces of God's puzzle. Great concepts in the Bible that form uh, great ideas that really help put the Bible together in many, many fashions, and the Bible's filled with them. If you really want to learn the Bible... You have to learn those keys, those concepts, those pieces of the puzzle. Bible, we talked about when we started our study, is like a picture puzzle. It has a, when you put all the pieces together, you have a picture. That picture is what God is doing from Genesis to Revelation. And of course, uh, there's a lot of little pieces, but there are so some major big pieces. And uh, it's the big pieces that fit together that begin to give you a picture, and then the little pieces are obvious where they fit in. So as we've been coming through these books of the Bible, I've been not only showing you consistently how that they go and laying out concepts about God and the Word of God that you can use and setting up a kind of like a little uh, area of study for you that as you come through each book of the Bible, you can basically understand what you're about to read, what you need to look for, what the context is, that's major. But then as we put the pieces together, and today you're going to learn another great piece. Now, the book of uh, Micah, uh, uh, historically, uh, is a, he prophesied during the kings Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. You remember when we came through our study of Kings and Chronicles, as we were coming through those books, we talked about those men. And uh, he's a contemporary of the great prophet Isaiah. He preaches during that same period of time. Many times, and most people don't know this, many of these prophets... Uh, are preaching, and you've got to remember now, the land of Israel is a, is a big place. Many of these prophets are, are prophesying at the same time, covering uh, much of the same material uh, in different parts of the country. Now, we've been giving you a breakdown of just about every book of the Bible, and we need to do that here, and I use that breakdown. I tell you, as you start to come through these books, and I hope that you're working on a regular basis trying to get the, the meat of these books down, These breakdowns need to go at the front of those books. So the first thing you see when you're going to read it, study it, or somebody asks you a question, that you have a general context. And the breakdown of this book is is simple, just as most of them are. Chapters 1 and 2, we see that it follows the line of all the prophets so far that we've talked about, both major and minor. He starts to preach God's coming judgment, or continues to preach the theme of God's coming judgment. In chapter 3 and to chapter 5, you find the great promises that even though God is going to come down and judge them, that God is going to restore them. So we find promises of the restoration of Israel. And then in chapter 6 and chapter 7, we find a plea 
uh, by Micah for Israel to repent and come back to God. And the book of Micah is written to the, book, to the, to the Judah, the southern tribes, uh, before the exile. That's before the captivity that we've talked about. So from a historical standpoint, it kind of fits into the whole concept of things and follows the line of the other prophets. Now, inspirationally, inspirationally, that's how it applies to you and me. Historically is what it was actually doing in history. But we know that God writes down stories, concepts, principles that help us in our daily walk and helps us understand things in the time period that we live. And inspirationally, we again see the great parallels between the nation of Israel and the body of Christ, the church. We've talked about this many, many times, and yet it's something that I feel that it cannot be overemphasized in the time period that we live in. Uh, we see the great parallels. Last week we studied the book of Jonah, and I showed you how in the book of Jonah that God has a mission, how that Jonah was a, was a picture of what your life and my life should be, a man or a woman who gets the call of God, to take the message of God to the world, that's our mission, and then I showed you his response to it, which unfortunately is the response of most of God's people today. And we looked at the concept of that when you refuse to do the mission of God, just like Jonah did in his life, it brings a storm in your life and it wounds up uh, in all kinds of problems. So we laid that out and that was a great study uh, from a practical standpoint as well as a doctrinal showing you that it was a type of the resurrection. But we defined our mission. Jonah had a mission to Nineveh. You and I have a mission to the world. And the reason for its failure, both in the Old Testament and in the time period that we live in, is because of the attitude that we have and the unwillingness that we have to serve God the way God wants us to serve Him. Now that's what Micah's up against. In Micah, all the Old Testament prophets have my respect. When I talked to you last week about uh, a hardness and being able to endure things as a child of God without wimping out and whining all the time. When I talk like that, I have the prophets in mind because those boys really had to stand up to it and face it. And Micah's no different than the rest. He's up against a system that pretends to be religious, yet it is totally against God, totally against the things of God, who do not really take kindly to somebody standing up and telling them that they're wrong and they're not doing right. And Micaiah, he doesn't wimp out. He lays an axe right to the root of the problem that he has with Israel. He's God's thermonuclear thunderbolt. And you know what? All down through the history of the church, all down through the history of the Bible, even in our lifetime, if you take any kind of study of the history of the church in the modern day, you'll find that in the midst of apostasy, that God always has his man. God always has somebody that the world, the Christian world, can't break, can't buy can't intimidate. Somebody that'll stand and take a stand for people to see the truth of God in a world called Christianity where there is no truth of God anymore. And I'll tell you, uh, when God needed for you and for me, when the modern Baptist movement through the Southern Baptist Convention had went into deep apostasy, God needed a thermonuclear sledgehammer to break independent Baptist Bible-believing Christianity out of the dead lethargical uh, apostate concept of the Southern Baptist Convention. He found it in a man by the name of J. Frank Norris. J. Frank Norris is one of the most hated men that you'll ever find in, in the history of the modern church by most people. And why? Because he took a stand against modernism in our churches. He broke out and he preserved for you and for me 
The very fact that you can have a King James Bible and read it this morning, and most of God's people don't even know that. The very people who read the Bible, who claim they love the Bible, will cuss J. Frank Norris up one side and down the other because of what they've heard about him, not because of what they know about him. In a day and age when this Christianity was going into apostasy, he held the line, just like Micaiah did, just like, Jonah, or like Isaiah did, just like Jeremiah did, just like many men do all down through church history uh, that you find if you take a little time to, sp to study it. He's God's man. He never worries about being politically correct. He never worries about being tolerant. He never worries about saying the right thing or the wrong thing to the wrong right people. He just takes the Word of God and lays it out and let the chips fall where they may. That's, that's the mark of God's man. And he understands that Israel's problem is corrupt rulers, false teaching and false prophet, and ungodly priests who want to pervert the Word of God and teach the people a lie. His message is very simple, very clear, and right to the point. He basically says throughout the book, and it all comes down to one verse in chapter 3, I think it's verse 12, he says this, God is going to wipe you people out and your religious system and your great dynasties and your great monument to man's glory. God is going to plow them into a cornfield and plant pine trees where your great institutions of false religion stand. And brother, he doesn't, he doesn't mix any words with them. He exposes the corruption of the priesthood. He exposes the political corruptness of its leaders, judges that are bought with bribes, just like pastors today that will, will cater to somebody with a lot of money versus somebody who doesn't have anything. It's all built on politics. Judges who are bought with bribes, merchants who use false weights, sin and ungodliness and the rejection of God and His Word. It just predominates every level of this great nation which we know as God's people. You know, the great parallels... If you study between the Old Testament nation of Israel and the body of Christ. And I've told you before, Israel had a mission, we have a mission. They have the Word of God, we have the Word of God. And in both cases, we do the same exact thing. There's a great banner across the front of our churches today, just like there was a great banner that was displayed across the nation of Israel back in the Old Testament. In the midst of their holy days, in the midst of their feasts, in the midst of their plays and their dramas and their pageants, and all the religious ceremony, the great banner across the Old Testament, and just like the Old Testament has went into apostasy, the body of Christ today, the church of God, has literally turned into third world countries. They don't have pastors anymore. They have presidents. They have kings. They have dictators. They have people who want to orchestrate your life up one side and down the other and get everything they can from you. Uh, and without giving anything back. They rule over the masses. I believe this is called the Doctrine of Nicolaitans in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. And while the people starve, because the Bible says in Amos chapter 8 verse 11, there's a famine today, not a famine of bread and water, but a famine of feasting of the Word of God. And yet across the nation of Israel, just like across our churches, the banner reads simply this, Mission of God canceled due to lack of interest. We've got more going on in churches today, just like Israel had more going on. You know, and I, I, I keep kind of reemphasizing this because from my preaching, talking about the negative of Israel, you would get the idea that the nation of Israel was totally corrupt and totally into paganism and totally against everything of God and totally uh, just down on anything that was truth. And they are. They really are. 
But the great thing is, buddy, at the same time, they are presenting themselves to everybody around that they are with God, that they love God, they're doing great things for God, they're still having their own feast, they're still doing everything uh, except what God says they're supposed to do, and they're giving, the, uh, they're giving the panoramic view that they're really where God wants them to be. In actuality, they're so far away from God, they're not even hardly recognizable from where they were under David and under Solomon much like the church today. Mission of God canceled. You know, I think one of the greatest verses, and I don't know if you can grasp this this morning, I don't know where you're at, but I think one of the greatest verses, and if you've been paying attention, as we've been coming through, I've been giving you a series of verses that show you the great parallels. One-liner verses that just will basically decapitate Christianity as we know it today and expose it for what it is. And in chapter 2, verse 11, here comes another great verse. And this is one of the greatest verses that you're going to find that shows you the great spiritual ignorance and the great despicable time of spiritual debauchery, much like it is today. For he says in verse 11, look at this. If a man walking in the spirit of falsehood do lie, saying, I will prophesy unto thee of wine and strong drink, he shall even be the prophet of this people. Now, I don't know if you can grasp what he's saying in this verse. But wine and strong drink is a violation of the Old Testament law under, 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 under Moses' law. And what he's saying is here that these people are so stupid. These people are so uh, ignorant of biblical truth. For years and years and years, they have been sold a bill of goods by a body of men, pastors, priests, and everybody involved, that have told them that evil is good and good is evil. And now, here we are in the church back here, or in the Old Testament, where somebody who's got a spirit of falsehood is standing up in the temple, preaching to the people, violations of the law of God are okay, and everybody's making that man the prophet of the people. That's where we're at in the Old Testament. And my friend, that's exactly where we're at today in the Laodicean church period. We've got people who are teaching things that are not correct, that are not right, that are outright lies. We have people who are formulating whole concept of Christianity that are not based on anything resembling anything in the Bible. And the people, because of their ignorance, are just saying, Amen, Amen, Amen. We've lost the ability, as the Bible says, and I keep hate bringing the Bible up in this, we've lost the ability to try the spirits. We don't understand today what it means in the book of Romans to have the witness of the Spirit. We don't have a clue of what it means in the book of Corinthians to compare Scripture with Scripture to get the answer. We accept sin for Bible truth because we have rejected God and His Word, and in our world, the Christian world, we don't even know what truth is anymore. The people are so ignorant that a, bl a, a, a blind man or a, a, an unsaved man comes in or any man comes in and he says that the things that are sin are right and the things that are right are sin. And all the people do not have the ability, just like in the nation of Israel. This is what Mike is up against. This is what he's fighting. He's a man with a message of truth to a world that doesn't understand truth anymore. They've lost the concept of truth. They're in a time where situation ethics is the rule. Whatever feels good is right, so whatever feels good is what you do. And that's exactly what we're in today. 
And I don't have to give you any examples of it. You all understand what the world is like in the Laodicean church period. Now, doctrinally, doctrinally, our time frame is defined for us in chapter 4, verse 1. And here's where we get into our study. Because in chapter 4, verse 1, he says this phrase, In the last days, the last days. Now, that's the phrase that I want to talk to you about today. This is the big piece of the puzzle. This is going to help you figure out things. This is really going to help you come New Year's Eve. And I'm glad that most of you are here because you're going to need this piece to figure out, and I'll bring it up again and lay it out, but to have this and that will really help you. Because uh, the thing of figuring out what's going on in the world today is found right here in that little phrase in these last days. And we're going to learn something new today. I've already taught you one piece of the puzzle. That day, the day, the day of the Lord will always be a reference to specifically the second coming of Christ. Now today I'm going to lay out for you the concept of the last days. What is commonly taught as we use it in a kind of a, uh, just a general way, you know, well we're living in the last days. Well what does that mean? Does that mean Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday? Or what exactly does that mean? Well, you know, Brother Bob, we're in the last days. I understand that. Which last days are you speaking about? The last days of this month or the last days of last month? Or just a general period of time? The Bible doesn't deal with it in this concept of a general period of time. The Bible deals with it in a specific period of time. And over 20 times in your Bible, you'll find, uh, and, it'll, and it'll always be dealing with a specific period of time that you're going to find that God makes a reference to it in these last days. Now, I need to tell you this and preface this. What I'm about to teach you, and I want you to know this fully going in. I want you to understand. I don't want you to be any, any illusions of this. What I'm about to teach you is heresy. Remember heresy a couple of weeks ago? We defined heresy. Well, what I'm about to give you is defined as heresy today by 99% of the teachers, pastors, great spiritual leaders, and the great theologians of our world today. Now, it may bother you, but it never bothered me when the truth came up against the Word of God. You see, some of God's people today may have the fundamental dysfunctional concept of not being able to know what's right and what's wrong. I, don't, I, I got enough problems, but that not is one of them that I have. I understand that back in 1710, David Gregory, who was a math professor of Oxford, a great Bible believer, he had what I'm about to give you figured out and wrote down. I know that. I know that what I'm about to say, the Waldendians had figured out from 1000 to 1500 A.D. I know that you can still go into most bookstores and buy a book by Clarence Larkin that he wrote in 1900 that will give you the exact same material that I'm giving you right now. I know that. I know that Sir Robert Dilt Wilson, around 1900, wrote a book. The book was called The Coming Prince. Never in the history of the world, to my knowledge, has there ever been a book that comes close to that book, The Coming Prince, which lays out and details in 1900 the same stuff I give you on Sunday morning, give you on Thursday night, and give you throughout your, our times together in the Word of God that lays out the Antichrist in a concept that is based on the Bible, and Dick Wilson knew it in 1900. George Wilson, great Bible expositor, in 1887, wrote a work on the last days. It went 1,055 pages, 685,000 words, and it stood the test of every challenge for the last 140 years. So you see, what we're up against here is what I gave you in one of those great verses 
Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12. I remember dearly the, the shocked look on your face like a deer in the road in the headlights when I gave you that great verse. How that, that great verse says so much, just like the verse I already gave you today, how that uh, men are get up in a spirit of falsehood, preaching lies, and the people say amen because God's people do not understand what Sir Robert Dick Wilson understood, what David Gregory understood, what the Waldendians understood, what Clarence Larkin had, that George Wilson had. We don't have it today, so we come to the point where the great things that God gives us, Hosea chapter 8, verse 12, become strange things. And that's where we're at today. We, like Israel, have taken the things of, that, made, uh, that are made from truth and make them lies, and the things that are lies, we make truth. So I'm telling you right up front that what I'm about to give you, what I'm about to lay out, is one of the greatest pieces of a puzzle to figure out and lay out the Word of God. But it's also rejected by 99.9999% of what we commonly call Bible Christianity today, who have lost their moorings, who do not understand truth, couldn't figure it out their life dependent on it, have no idea who David Gregory was, couldn't find a Waldensian with a laser beam and a flashlight in a dark room, don't understand Clarence Larkin, never read Thy Coming Prince, I don't know what they're reading, but boy, they can give you the scores of the Chiefs game, they can give you this, they can give you that, they can give you everything in the world, but what is really going to matter in figuring out truth. Let me tell you something, that thing by George Wilson back in 1887 was the most devastating thing that has stood for 140 years. But see, most Bible teachers today, most pastors today, most theologians today bank on you not knowing those things. Now, here we go. And I want to give you one of the greatest keys to the puzzle. I'm going to go slow with this because I want you to be able to follow me here. But I, wanna, I, wanna, I don't want you to turn anywhere in your Bible just yet, but I want you to just listen to me because I can explain it better. And when you try to do two things at once, sometimes you don't, your ears close, and I don't want that to happen. So here's what we got. Now what we're going to do is we're going to go back to Genesis chapter 1. Not really. Don't turn to it. I'm going to walk you back there. And in Genesis chapter 1, we find uh, in uh, verse uh, 2 through verse 31, we find that God creates, recreates everything in seven days. Now, that seven days creation is a, is a great study in itself. Most men teach today that it's not 24-hour periods of time. In fact, Marion gave me a, those little things that you gave me, somebody gave him at work who he's talking with that doesn't believe that there's 24 periods of time. And when I read it, I mean, uh, I gave it to Johnny. Johnny wanted to read it. He came over. I gave it to Johnny Wood. And, and, he, and I, it was the most unbelievable, ridiculous argument that I've ever heard in my life how to get out of the fact that it wasn't 24 period of time, literal hours, in those seven days. In other words, the Bible teaches that God created everything in six days and rested on the seventh. Those six days are 24 hour periods of time. You say, Bob, how do you know that? Because when you go over to Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, he says, man is going to work six days just like God works six days. And he says, just as man works six days and will rest the seventh, he'll do that because the example is God worked six days and rested on the seventh. Now, I know one hard day at work seems like a thousand years, but it's really only 24 hours. And it's 24 hours back there. And, of course, men today, once you reject the Bible, 
You can teach whatever you want, and when you have people who know the Bible less than you do, then you can really teach whatever you want. And I'm saying this to you. I'm saying that those seven days of creation are 24-hour are, are periods of time, and they run one day, two day, three day, four day, five day, six day, and then run seventh day. And the Bible says in chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, that on the seventh day, God finished his work, and God rested. Now, that brings up a thing. How many times I've been asked by somebody over the years, why did God need a rest? Did God, why did God, was God wore out after six days? I thought God could do everything. I mean, why did God need a break? Why did God say, okay, why did the Bible say, well, I'm going to, God rested? Does that mean he took a, t down to Bermuda and took some time off? And what does that mean? What does it mean when the Bible says God rested? Well, number one, God never rests. God never rests in the sense that you and I rest. That rest in the Bible isn't God taking a break because he's tired. That rest in the Bible is a picture of the great day coming when the whole world goes at rest because of God's presence, the millennial reign of Christ. And what you have in Genesis chapter 1 is six periods of time, 24 hours each, and it runs one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. You know what he says? He says the evening and the morning were the first day. Evening and the morning were the second day. Evening and the morning were the third day. Evening and the morning were the fourth day. Evening and the morning were the fifth day. Evening and the morning were the sixth day. When he gets to the seventh day, no evening and morning. Why? Because it is a picture of the millennial reign of Christ, an endless day that goes into eternity where there is no beginning or ending. It is the eternal day of God, which we have talked about called the day of the Lord, that day and the day, all the way through the Bible. So what you've got in Genesis, and remember, I told you over and over and over again that the book of Genesis defines every concept in the Bible by the time you get to the end of the book, truth of the matter is, by the time you get to chapter 15, they're just about all done. But certainly when you get into Genesis, and he's talking about the beginning, if, the, if you've got the beginning, if you got in the beginning a perfect environment and a tree of life, and you've got in Revelation chapter 22 a perfect environment and a tree of life, you ought to be figure out that the beginning is the ending, and the ending is the beginning. If the Bible's a complete circle, and what you have, I'm going to show it to you in a second, I'm explaining it to you first, what you have is six periods of time represented by six days and God rests that seventh picture of the millennium it's showing you that man is going to be on this earth 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000, 6,000 years and the seventh thousand period of time is going to be the millennial day the day of God's rest when the whole earth the whole universe and everything rests now, if you got back there and you got into David's life and Solomon's life, if you have in your Bible, I don't know if you have it in your Bible or not, a lot of Bibles have a Bible chronology in them. That chronology are dates that run across the top. If you have an old Schofield Bible, you have a chronology which is called Usher's Chronology. My Bible is an Oxford Bible, and it doesn't have any chronology in it at all. So what I did was got me an old Schofield. You know, people leave all kinds of Bibles at church. You can get some really good deals for nothing if you just wait a couple of weeks. And I took one of them home one time, and I went through page by page by page and put Usher's Chronology. Usher is a man, not at a theater. His name was Archbishop Usher, Usher, and he sat down one day, 
started with the reign of David and Solomon in 1000 B.C. and then took the genealogy backwards and ran them forward and come up with the chronology that is in your Bible that is an absolute exact chronology based on the genealogies found in the Bible. Now, you might know this. Nobody accepts Usher's chronology today. They want to keep you as far from Bible truth as they can. Usher just took the chronology in the Bible. If the Bible's right, then he's right. If the Bible's wrong, then he's wrong. And what he came up with is that man is going to be on this earth one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. What the man that wrote The Coming Prince, Robert Dick Wilson, come up with, that man is going to be on this place one, two, three, four, five, six. Every one of the, what the Waldensians figured out in 1500 was that man was going to be on this earth one, two, three, four, five, six thousand years. What George Wilson put down in 685,000 words that have never been refuted, that as man is going to be on there, there's one, two, three, four, five, six thousand years, typified by the six days of creation, and then that seventh day is a picture of God's millennium, which happens at the second coming of Christ. Those guys had it figured out. Now, you see it again. Just because God knew I was slow, he put it in the Bible two more times. When he made up the nation of Israel, back there in the book of Leviticus, chapter 23 and chapter 24, he said, Israel, okay, Israel, I'm going to give you feasts. You're going to have eight feasts, and those eight feasts are going to run seven months. The first feast is going to be the feast of Passover, and that's where you're going to start your year. That goes back to Exodus chapter 12, if you know your Bible. He said the first month, you're going to have three feasts that first month. The Feast of Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the Feast of First Fruits. That all takes place in the first month. Then there's going to be a second month. That second month is going to be the Feast of Weeks. Then there's going to be a third month. That month is going to be the Feast of Pentecost. Then, the fourth, fifth, and sixth month, there are no feasts. And then the seventh month, there's three more feasts. There's the Feast of Trumpets. Feast of the Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And now we have come through seven months of the Jewish year, and the feasts stop. And there are no more feasts till it starts over again at the Feast of Passover in the first month. You know why? Because Genesis says man's going to be here one, two, three, four, five, six, and rest the seventh. And the feasts are set up on one month, two month, three month. Oh, yeah. The one, two, and three is a picture of the Old Testament. There's no feast the fourth, fifth, and sixth month because that's a picture of the church age. And then the seventh month, what do you got? Oh, 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 oh. The seventh month, I get it. First month, second month, third month, picture of the Old Testament nation of Israel. Fourth, fifth, and sixth month, no feast, picture of the church age. Seventh month, you got seven, you got three feasts. First one's the Feast of Trumpets, rapture of the church. Second feast is Feast of the Atonement, tribulation for the Jews. Last feast, Feast of Tabernacles, second coming of Christ. What more could you want? How slow do you have to go? I mean, it's right there. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I mean, it just never stops. Now, if that wasn't enough, in Revelation chapter 20, and I'm really slow, so God had to give it to me a third time, I mean, you get it once in Genesis, 
And then you get it in the end in Revelation, and then it gives it to you in the middle in Leviticus. And in Revelation chapter 20, the great chapter on the millennial reign of Christ, he tells you six times, 1,000 years, 1,000 years, 1,000 years, 1,000 years, 1,000 years, 1,000 years, six times, and then bang, you're into the millennium. I don't know what else you need. Now, if I'm up against the great scholars today, and everybody out there and says, well, that's heresy, you know, and da-da-da-da-da. You know what? I'm going to stick with David Gregory, the Waldensians, Clarence Larkin, Robert Dick Wilson, and George Wilson. Those boys knew the Bible, believed the Bible, and believed what they read. And I have read what they read. Now, with that in mind, oh, that was just a, that was just a, I'm not sure what that was. But anyway, come over to second, now we want to turn, come over to second Peter chapter three. Second Peter chapter, now we're going to get into it. Now we're going to have some fun. Now we're going to do something to scholarship that should never be do, done. We're going to open up the Bible. Now we're going to tread across that line that Christians fear, an open Bible. Now we're going to move into what the pastors shake and tremble at, the Scriptures. Now we're going to read Second Peter chapter 3, and I want you to stay with me on this. We're going to read the whole chapter, but <clears throat> we, we haven't got to our point yet. All I've laid out for you so far is that those six days of creation in Genesis are a picture of man being on this earth for 6,000 years, and the seventh day is going to be the millennium. Well, where do you see this? <clears throat> 3.1. The second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before the holy prophets, and the commandment unto us, the, uh, uh, the Savior of our Lord and Savior. Verse 3. Knowing this first, that there shall come, ah, here it comes, in the last days. There we are. We're right there where Micah is. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days, scoffers, walking after their own lust, saying, where is the promise of his coming? You know where the promise of his coming is found, don't you? It's in the word. People taught that years that people are running around saying, well, where's he at? Where's he at? Where's he at? The promise of God was never given in where's he at. The promise of God was given in a book. 800 times in that book it talks about the day of the Lord. And somebody says, where is the promise of his coming? They dumped the book. They've dumped the book. Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers have fell asleep, and most Christians in churches, all things, that's my postscript, not his. All things continue as they were, here it comes, from the what? From the beginning of the what? Creation. Ah, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, right where I took you. For this, they willingly are ignorant of, uh-oh, they're willingly ignorant of this, that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. Now, let us stop there. Every Bible scholar in the world today, every preacher in the world today, and every theologian in the world today will try to get you to believe that that's Noah's flood. And they'll make that Noah's flood. But you know why I know it's not Noah's flood? Because verse 5 has got an S on the end of heavens. Noah's flood didn't contain all, didn't, didn't, didn't encompass all three heavens. See, the first problem most God people have, they don't know the three heavens. 
They never went back to Psalm 78, Psalms 120 something back there and figured it out. They don't know there's three heavens. So when they see the word heavens, plural, they just blow it off and think that it doesn't mean anything. One little S on a word can put you in a whole dispensation in the Bible. Well, one little S on a man's chest can make him a normal man or a superman. So what, see what I mean? He says, for this they are willingly ignorant of, yes they are, that by the word of God, yes it was, the heavens, all three of them, first heaven, second heaven, that's outer space, and the third heaven, that's where Paul went, where God is in the book of 2 Corinthians. And the earth, standing out of the water and in the water. Well, that, he already told you we're going back to the beginning of creation. We're back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, when the water upon the face of the deep. In fact, if you want Noah's flood, you have to go back to chapter 2, verse 5, and you'll find it. That flood deals with the world. This one here deals with the heavens, plural. But the heavens, plural, and the earth, singular, which are now, by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment, day of judgment, day of judgment, second coming of Christ. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. Now, there he says it again. I told you seven times, seven times in your Bible. Seven times Paul tells you and me as a Christian there are seven things that we are not to be ignorant of and I'm going to tell you one more little piece of truth about it. Six of them have to do with the last days. Only one of them has to do with something else. And the very things, the very things that David Gregory were not ignorant of, the Waldendians were not ignorant of, Clarence Clarkin wasn't ignorant of, Sir Robert Wilson was not ignorant of and George Wilson had figured out God's people today are totally ignorant of and have no idea what I'm talking about. That's the difference. And he said, But the heavens, verse 7, and the earth which are now, but the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. All right, here it comes. And this is a piece of your puzzle. That one day, is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. He just told you that those one days back there in Genesis were pictures of something that connected with 1,000 year periods of time. Look at the next verse. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise. What promise? The promise of verse 4. The promise of His coming. That He's connected Genesis chapter 1 with the six days God rests in the seventh, showing you that those days are 1,000 periods of time as far as prophecy goes. And man is going to be, even though they're 24 hours back there, literally, as far as time, he set a pattern that man is going to be on this earth 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000, 6,000. And then the last 1,000 period of time is going to be the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, a time when this old world is at rest. Notice the key word, verse 3, the last days. Verse 4, promise of His coming. Verse 5, somebody is willingly ignorant about what we're going to look at. The context, verse 5, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Not Noah's flood, but the heavens. Verse 8, the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, the promise consecting with His coming. And then He tells you the key, that the one day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day, and God is not slack concerning that promise. And then he goes on and he says, But of the day of the Lord, context, will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens, all three of them, shall pass away with a great noise. This is up to Revelation chapter 20 now. 
Uh, the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. The earth also with the works that are in shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens, all three of them, being on fire, Revelation chapter 20, shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth, Revelation chapter 21, wherein dwelleth right. Boy, how could you miss it? He's showing you that, that he's showing you something about God's coming. And that God's coming is simply this. It man's going to run this little peanut planet for 6,000 years and come to the end of the conclusion that he thinks he's God, and then God's going to come in on the seventh day, trample his little anthill, and say, you're nothing, I'm everything. And that brings us right back to the great concept of God, which is the greatest concept of God, which I've told you over and over and over is the greatest concept about him, more greater than anything about him is his consistency. God's consistency will teach you more if you train yourself to look for the consistencies. All I did this morning up to this point, we still haven't got to our point yet, but we're coming. But I've got to lay the whole thing out so you can see the point of the last days. I have laid out seven days for you. Now I'm going to take you and show you the last days of those seven. God's consistency is the greatest concept you'll grasp. If you can get it and learn how to look for it and learn how to lay it out, you will learn more about the Bible and it will prove to you in a greater way who God is and His majesty that it's only in one book and you will absolutely understand how God operates. These days are six 1,000-year periods of time of man's history, and the seventh period, or the 7,000-year period, is that day, the day of the Lord, the day of God's millennial rest, laid out and understood just like Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and 19 said it would be, by the things that God made. One, the days in creation. Two, the feast that He gave the nation of Israel. Now, the next step, and this is the key. And this is what will help you understand what we're going to talk about New Year's Eve. This will be the peace that you want to bring with you that night. So in all of our times together between now and next week in our personal Bible studies, or you get a hold of me on the phone if you need me to solidify it so you understand it, you need to get it. Now, the next step is this. Those seven periods, those seven days, those 7,000, 1,000 years of period of time that mark the existence of man on earth and in God's millennial inheritance, they're split by God on the fifth day. It runs one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and then God takes a big magic marker, and I mean a big one, and he draws a line right down through the fifth day. He splits those days from four and three. Four and three. I'll show you what I mean. All right, keep in your mind now, don't turn to it, but walk back with me. Back to Genesis 1. Let me show you how this works. Now, I've taken a lot of time this morning in a very hopefully understandable way of laying out this great concept. But here's what we have. Let's test our theory. Let's see if David Gregory really knew what he's talking about. Maybe Clarence Larkin was high when he wrote his book. Let's see. We've got one, two... Three, four, five, six, and we're going to put seven over here because it's separated from the rest. That's the millennium. We've got 6,000 years 
represented by 624 literal hour days that God says over there in 2 Peter chapter 3 are a picture of something to do with His coming. And then He gives us the key that one day with the Lord is a thousand years, a thousand years, one day. Let's test the theory. Back to Genesis. One, two, three, four, five. You know what showed up on the fifth day of creation? Life showed up. Let's test the theory. 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000. You know what showed up 5,000 years after Adam? Christ showed up. He was the light, and the light was the light of men. That's not all. One, two, three, four, five. On that fifth day, life shows up in the form of a whale. The whale's the only picture. There's only two animals mentioned in the creation in Genesis. One of them's the whale, the other one's cattle. There's a study for you. Ain't got time for that today. But the whale, the whale, and you already told last week when we studied the book of Jonah that the whale was a picture of the resurrection of Christ. And without that whale, there is no resurrection. And without that resurrection, there is no life. So 5,000 years after Adam and Eve, life showed up in the form of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the form of light that was God's light, and the light was the life of men, and the only sign given to anybody was the sign of Jonah, which is a whale. And God splits that thing right between the fourth and the fifth day, or right at the fifth day. You know why? Because the fourth four show you the Old Testament, and then the fifth day is when life shows up, shows you the New Testament, and from that period of on, those last three days are a picture of what God's doing in the New Testament, and He wants you to understand the difference, first of all, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is why you'll find, like in Hosea chapter 6, verse uh, 1 through 12, we looked at it, we can do, he'll talk about the third day. Now you want to start watching in your Bible. When he starts talking about the third day, now that you know where the split is, that third day will not be the third day from Adam. It'll be the third day after the crucifixion. It'll be the second coming of Christ. See, he splits it two ways. He'll teach you one way, one, two, three, four, five, six, and then the millennium's the seventh. That's one way he'll give it to you. But then he wants you to understand that there's a difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So he splits that thing on the fifth day or 5,000 years after Adam and Eve, and he puts a whale, he puts life show, you that that's the crucifixion and Christ showing up with a death, burial, and resurrection. And then so the fifth day and the sixth day is the church age. And then the seventh day is the rapture of the church and the millennium and the tribulation period and on into it from there. He lays that thing out for you in a systematic way. So every time you find where he talks about the third day, after two days, I'll give you another one in John chapter 2. Here's a freebie. I'll just throw this one out like my dogs get biscuits before they go to bed at night. And they grab them too. Blood. You know what? In John chapter 2, little story there. This is what you got to watch. In John chapter 2, insignificant story. How many times have I heard songs about it? How many times have I heard preachers preach on it? How many times have I heard people go all dance all around it but never hit it? You know what it said? It said in John chapter 2, there was a marriage in Canaan on the third day. Now, you don't have the text in John chapter 2 if you want to run a marriage and somebody wants to get married, or you can use it for that. You know what you got in John chapter 2? You got a marriage in Cana of Galilee on the third day, picture of the marriage supper of the Lamb in the millennium after Christ comes back. And that's why the wine that that guy drank that Christ made, he never drank anything like it in his life. You know why? He got a taste of what it's going to be like in the millennium after Christ comes back on the third day. Oh, yeah. 
Once the consistency stops, starts, it never stops. Now, why did he do that? Why did he split that thing between the fourth and the fifth day, or at the fifth day? Why did he make it one, two, three, four, split, five, six, seven? Because the whole thing changes after the resurrection of Christ. That's why. The mission changes. The people change. God's plan changes. Where once in the first 4,000 years Israel carried the ball, now it's been halftime, and now the church gets to carry the ball. Now the church gets the mission. The New Testament comes into effect, and out of the seven things you're told, like I said before, as a New Testament Christian not to be ignorant of, six of them have to deal with this time period right here. Now this is why the Middle East is an incredible study. This is why every child of God needs to understand the concept of the one day with the Lord is a thousand years, the seven years, seven thousand years, six thousand years of man, the three days, you have to understand those three days or the, uh, as he says here, after three days or the third day because it represents a specific period in history with specific things. You see, everything changes after the resurrection of Christ. Everything. Though God has a plan, the man who carries out the plan is different. Where before it was a kingdom of heaven, now it's a kingdom of God. A lot of things change. A lot of things appear to change that really don't change. And this is where the Christian gets deceived. He doesn't understand what the Bible says in the book of Ecclesiastes where it says there's nothing new under the sun. There's no new thing. When somebody comes up with something new today, it's not new. It's the same old concept, just repackaged, repainted, and refurbished and being passed off as God's concept. There's five, there's five phases to God's plan. From Genesis to Revelation, we're going to study them third, or New Year's Eve. We're going to go through them New Year's Eve. Five phases running you through these seven days, making the split at the fifth day, and then carrying you through the last days. So when you find the phrase, the last days in the Bible, it will be specifically talking about the last 3,000 years of that 7,000-year period. It will be talking about the crucifixion, including the church age, that'll be the, that'll be the fifth and the sixth day. We are living right now, put it in perspective, we are living right now in the last moments, the last moments of the sixth day. We are right on the last fringes of the sixth day. The first fifth day was from Christ right up to uh, middle of the church age, and now we're living these last times, and we're right here where we're at, in our time, 2004, at the very end of the last fragment of the last edge of the last pinnacle of time on that sixth day. The last grains of sand are dripping through God's hourglass and the five phases of God, four of them have been laid out. The fifth phase is already enacted and just coming to the point where it's all going to come together. The book got prepared Israel gets prepared. The land gets prepared. Brother, the church better get prepared. And I'm telling you, those last days are great concepts that you have got to understand if you're going to put your Bible together in any meaningful fashion of laying it out. And that's why I wanted to say what I said today because when we come Thursday night, we're going to be able to pick up on that and then go on from there. So he says in Micah chapter 4, verse 1, but in the last days. The teaching and the concepts will span 2,000 years of our time. And this is something you have to see doctrinally about these books. 
I know they're written in the Old Testament. I know historically they're written to Israel in a bad time. But prophetically and inspirationally, they're written to Israel in the bad time they're in right now. And God's judgment is going to hit them again, just like it hit them with Nebuchadnezzar and Sennacherib in 606 and 589 B.C. The teachings of Micah spans the 2,000 years of our church age and God preparing lands, nations, people, America, and the church all up against that third day that's coming. So in chapter 4, you're going to find in verse 6 the concept of that day. You're going to find in verse 9 a woman in travail. That's Israel, Revelation chapter 12 and 13. And you're going to find in verse 10 Babylon. Uh, that's Revelation chapter 17 and verse... In, 17 and 18. In chapter 5, you're going to see in verse 2 the great prophecy in the first coming of Christ and the second coming. And that's found in Matthew uh, chapter 2, verse 5, about the prophecy of Christ coming from Bethlehem. In verse 5, you're going to find Assyria and a type of the Antichrist. You're going to find seven shepherds and eight principal men. Sound like a confusing concept till you go back to the Old Testament in Revelation chapter 11 and you write out that there's some Old Testament saints that show up to lead Israel and that's what you're dealing with. Verse 10, that day, second coming. Verse 12 shows you the witchcraft and the graven images the nation of Israel is embracing as religions calling truth lies and lie truth and have men with false prophets or spirits of falseness teaching them despicable things outside the Word of God, and they're accepting them, just like we talked about as we came through earlier in the book of Micah. In chapter 6, we see Micah's great plea for the repentance uh, of Israel and their obedience to God, uh, them coming back. He says in verse 7, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? Oh, this is a great concept. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my trespass? the fruit of my body for the sins of my soul. Verse 8 says, He has showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but do justify and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. You know what? Saul and Samuel were up across the same thing one time in, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22. Saul was a lot like the nation of Israel. In fact, he pictures the nation of Israel. And you know what? You know what Samuel told him? Same thing Mike is telling them. You know what? You can give 10,000 rams to God all you want. You can pour oil over everything till it's so oily you'll slip and break your leg. You know what? God is not impressed with the things that you do. God is impressed with the things that you are. You know what God wants more than sacrifice? You know what God wants more than you doing what, something nice for Him? You know what God wants more than all this religious phoniness you got on? God wants you to obey what He says in His Word. Brother, it comes right down to that. True to us. That's what we're doing today. We're playing church, playing God, playing Christian. We're bouncing around all over the place thinking we're doing what's right. We don't even have a clue what's right. We've listened to men with false spirits, false things. We think that truth is lies and lies are truth. We don't even know where our own Bible came from, yet we stand up and say, I got a Bible. You don't even know where it came from. You don't even know how you got it. You don't even know who paid the price tag for you to get it. We talk about things we have no clue about. We act like we know what we're talking about when we absolutely don't know anything about it. And yet we're running around doing all kinds of spiritual things and God says, you know what? I'm not interested in that. Only thing I'm really interested in is you just doing what I told you to do in my word. That's Israel. That's us. Then chapter 7, verse 1. Look at it. Gleaning grapes. That's Revelation chapter 14, Revelation chapter 11. Those are the tribulation saints. 
There's the last part of the rapture of the church. You know, there's three parts of the rapture. There's the first fruits. That's the Old Testament saints. There's the harvest. That's you and me going any second now. And then there's the gleanings. What you don't get. What isn't right. That's the tribulation saints. That's chapter 7, verse 1. And he says this in verse 7. Therefore I will look unto the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. That's Psalms 40, verses 1, 2, and 3 for you. My God will hear me. It was on that last verse. Therefore I will look unto the Lord. I will wait my salvation, my God will hear me. You know what you've got? You've got the picture of Israel for the last 2,000 years. That's been their prayer and their cry without them even knowing it. They're so far from God right now, they have no clue where he's at, what he's doing, what's going on. They are so politically corrupt, so religiously corrupt, and so caught up in all of the things of this world that they can't see God, but yet God sees them. And that's why I'm telling you, that's why every child of God needs to understand the Middle East, not because of the times that we're living right now, but rather the times it's the God, it's the, it's the whole concept of God, and the Bible doesn't make sense without understanding what God is doing in that time frame. God is about to call back His people unto Himself in a big way. They're waiting for Him right now. God is waiting for a few things to fall in the line. All the major points are already done. God is just waiting for the time, the sand to drop through that hourglass, and then God's going to rapture the church, and God's going to take, and we're going to get into the third day. Everything in that Bible toward the second coming of Christ is after two days, in two days, on the third day, or the last days. Now you have the pieces. You have the two concepts. One, two, three, four, five, six, and then the seventh is a picture of the whole span of things from Genesis to Revelation, and then God splits it on the fifth day, picture the crucifixion, and shows you that there's something special about the last days, the last three days, the last 3,000 years of a 7,000-year period where man thinks he's going to run this planet, and God comes back and says, no, you're not. I'm going to. I'm going to. We'll pick it up on Thursday night, and we'll carry it through the rest of the way, and we'll put the whole concept, and I'm telling you right now, you will leave a little smarter, a little more in touch with what's going on, a little more informed, and a little more in touch with where God is at in these last days. And when I start to use the phrase from this point on, the last day, you'll know exactly now what I'm talking about. Not some spooky time period that nobody knows, a very defined, specific time period in which God is doing some things through a people with a mission to accomplish some things while God brings His nation back to Him. Father, we thank you and praise you.